churches are full of hypocrites. Sadly, that sentiment is too often true. Christians do not practice what they preach. And Psalm 50 speaks to this issue. Psalm 50 demands a faith that acts, what the Bible refers to as faith and obedience. As James said in chapter 2, 17 and 18, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, we know that Psalm 50 was written by Asaph, one of David's chief musicians. And in this psalm, it reveals God coming in glory to judge his people, to judge their worship, to judge their obedience. And finally, it reveals that this judge is also the Savior. As we'll see, the prescription to dealing with hypocrisy in the church is to read Psalm 50 and to understand, here comes the judge. In verses 1 through 6, the judge is God the Creator. Verse 1, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken, and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very temptuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. The speaker is none other than the mighty one, God the Lord. Literally, El Elohim, Yahweh. Compounding God's name gives an awesome sense of his majesty. The mighty one, God the Lord. He speaks and calls the earth. And this call to the earth is a summons to witness his judgment. The very realm that he has created, he is calling upon this, this created realm to stand in witness to the judgment that he is going to unleash, not on the ungodly. No, we're talking about judgment upon his people. The whole earth is to appear before him from the rising of the sun to its going down. He speaks in Zion, that is the holy mountain where his temple stands. Zion is perfect because God is in her midst. In his holiness, in his majesty, he radiates light. This is the very reason Moses came from the Lord's presence on Sinai with his face shining, reflecting God's glory, Exodus thirty-four twenty-nine. This light that has shone forth, as our text says, is a revelation. Because when God shines, he speaks. He declares himself. He allows his character to be seen. He allows his majesty to be known. And he comes there as a devouring fire and a very tempestuous or a whirling all around him. Literally, we think of a whirlwind of fire. You know, on Sinai, God descended in a fire with a great earthquake. Later, uh, to the prophet Elijah, God appeared when he called Elijah home in a whirlwind of fire. And when God judges his people, he comes in this whirlwind of fire as well. The, and that what it is is a manifestation of his glory, a manifestation of his character. Heaven and earth are going to stand 
in witness. The whole of creation, the cosmos, the supernatural, and the natural are all summoned because God is ready to judge his people. The God, the creator, is, going, is the one who is going to judge. And that's why he is able to judge, because he is our creator. He's not some abstract deity that we do not know. He, we are the very works of his hand. And that's why he says in verse 5, Gather my saints. Saints here are the people of the covenant. Now in the Old Testament, Israel was the people of the covenant. In the New Testament, the church are the people of a covenant. And both of those covenants were made with blood. You know, when we think about the term saint, it doesn't mean that we're saintly. It means that we're set apart by God. It means that God has called us and has bound us to Him. And as we come, the psalmist exhorts the heavens to witness to God's righteousness. His faithfulness to His covenant relationship assures us that when He judges us, his judgment will be just. And so these first six verses set forth the uh, stage of this divine court. And God has called the witnesses of heaven and earth, and he has called us, the saints, as the accused, to stand before him. And in righteousness he will judge, and therefore we know the outcome will be fair and true. Now what is he going to judge? He's going to judge our faith and obedience. And he's going to judge it in our worship. And that's why when we come to verses 7 through 15, we see that God judges our worship. Here comes the judge. And he's going to judge your worship. Believer, you need to look at your worship. Is your worship nothing more than ritual? Or is your worship founded on his righteousness? Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goat out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I, not, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. You see, above all else, worship is on God's heart. To love Him wholly is the great commandment of Deuteronomy 6.5. When Christ was asked what's the greatest commandment, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.5. You're to love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Your entire being is to be consumed in loving God. And love for him is demonstrated in our worship. So God speaks and his people are to listen as he testifies against him. Now first, notice God identifies himself. I am God, you're God. In other words, he's the covenant God. He affirms their sacrifices. I'm not going to rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings that are given continually. Okay? He's, he's affirming those things. Just like he affirms certain things. Hey, listen, you know, you do this and you do that and that's good. That's fine. Third, he says, listen, I don't need the sacrifice. You do. 
And that's what you and I have to understand. You know, while we're not making sacrifices of animals, we're still called upon a sacrifice. We're to make a sacrifice of our lives, Romans 12, 2. We're to make a sacrifice with our lips, uh, Hebrews 13, I believe, verse 5. But this, the sacrifice that you and I are making isn't for God's sake. It's for our sake. He doesn't need it. He requires, of it, of, he requires it of us to keep us humble. He requires of it of us to make us continually dependent upon Him. He refuses to go looking, he says, for a bull from your house or goats. He says, listen, I don't need your sacrifice, you know, because I need food. Now, again, in the context of the Old Testament... Uh, the pagan religions made their sacrifices to their God because they were feeding their God. He said, listen, I'm not, I'm not getting a full belly off your sacrifice. I, he says, listen, I got the cattle on a thousand hill. I know all the birds of the mountain, all the wild beasts of the field. I've got vast herds and flocks. Why do I need your bull or goat? And then in verse 12, we have the absurd idea that God waits for the sacrifices to be offered as his supper. He says, I reject that notion. I don't need my people to feed me. You know, and that's still, even in modern religions, still this idea that, you know, we've got to go and, and bring things to this idol uh, because, you know, the idol needs these things, needs this food uh, to feed itself. God says, I'm not dependent on those things. He mockingly asks, am I going to eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Of course not. Sacrifices are to be offered not for God's sake, but for our sake. It's, as on our part, a sign of the covenant, an act of surrender to God. Now, verse 14, true worship is defined, and it begins with the heart, offer to God thanksgiving. That's sacrifice, by the way. You know, one of the offerings that were to be made was a thanksgiving offering. The lips of praise are to offer thanksgiving to the Lord. While we're not uh, necessitating a blood sacrifice, for one, we don't have a temple, we're not in Jerusalem, we don't have Levites, but the spirit of that offering we're still commanded to give in the New Testament. We're supposed to be making an offering of thanksgiving of our lips. But true worship also includes obedience. The word vows there must be paid to the Most High. A vow is any kind of promise to God. Okay, What have you promised to God? That's what he's looking for. What have you committed to do before a holy God? And here God is called the Most High, a title that was used by Melchizedek, king of Salem, when he blessed Abraham, Genesis 14, 18. And it literally means God above all other gods. You see, my friends, when worship comes from the heart, it's going to exhibit itself in our obedience. You know, if you, if you find Christians who are running into disobedience, all you need to do is back up to their heart, and you'll find out they're not worshiping. Or if they're worshiping, it's man-made, ritualistic, sensualistic, all about feeding the emotions in the flesh. True worship of God begins with a heart of surrender, a heart that, that demonstrates itself with lips of thanksgiving and praise for what God has done. So worship's about lowering yourself and elevating God. Worship continues to demonstrate itself in what we're promising to do for God. Okay, God, you know, because uh, you are holy, 
I'm going to stop doing this sin. Uh, because you've commanded me to do this, I'm going to go and do that. That's worship, making a commitment to God. You know, this passage up through verse 15 has some important application for us because we often think that God needs us. We think that he needs our money, our time, and our worship. After all, what would he do if it weren't there? And I say that that attitude needs to be rebuked and judged for two reasons. God don't need your money, your time, and your worship. Because if that's the case, if God needs those things, let me tell you something, that presupposes a weak God. And God is not weak. He is the sovereign Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my time. He doesn't need my worship. The second reason, not only does it presuppose a weak God, but if we think that God needs those things, it expresses a high view of ourselves. Well, God can't get along without me. He can't get along without my money. He can't get along without my worship. That's all pride. That's all built on you. And my friends, when pride enters in, you, as a proud person, cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. You've got to humble yourself. So listen, why do you serve God? Why do you give money to the Lord's work? Why do you worship? If you're doing that because you think God needs it, wake up. Wake up. You ought to be doing it because it demonstrates that you're surrendered to Him. You ought to do it because it demonstrates that you're humbling yourself to Him. You ought to do it because it shows you're dependent upon Him. But if you think somehow God's waiting on you and depending on you, i got a clue for you. God's not. Now, not only does He judge our worship, but He judges our obedience. Verses 16 to 21. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth, for you hate discipline? Remember, he's talking to believers here. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil. Your tongue fr frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I'm going to reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now God addresses believers as the wicked in judgment, rebuking us for using His law and claiming His covenant. And what's He talking about here? What He's talking about is the issue of obedience. We've been given His law. We have been given the instruction manual on how to Please and obey God. And when we do the things we're told not to do, God sees us as wicked. He sees us with a heart not turned towards Him, but away from Him. And throughout the Scripture, a wicked person is one who hates instruction, rejects God's Word, and casts them behind Him. See, a wicked person consents with a thief. He gets along with the thief. He's pleased with him. In other words, he, he accepts the thief favorably. And that violates the spirit of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. The wicked person has been a partaker with adulterers. To be a partaker here is to have a portion with those who break the marriage vow. That's a violation of the Seventh Commandment. Third, the wicked person has a wicked tongue, which includes evil coming out of his mouth. 
his tongue framing deceit and speaking against a brother or slandering his brother. That violates the wider application of the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 20.16 And thus, point by point, the charge that the wicked hate instruction, cast God's words behind them, is documented. And God says, listen, I've been silent over this. But he says, I'm silent no longer. You thought I was altogether like you? I'm not. You're wrong. I'm now come. The judge has come. He's come in judgment. He's come to terrify you and to reprove you. And that word rebuke there in verse 21 means to judge, convict, and correct. The judgment here then is redemptive in its intention. Now the case has been made and God sets the evidence in order before your eyes as in a legal case. This is similar to Romans 2, 17 and 24, where Paul accused the Jews of knowing the law and yet disobeying it. Same charges can be laid against the church. If you know God's law and you shrug your shoulders or ignore God's law, then you've brought judgment on yourself. You know, the church is great for preaching against stealing and yet go on stealing. It's great for abhorring adultery while committing adultery. It's great for hating on idols, yet robbing temples. They boast in the law and break it at the same time. And the judgment of Psalm 50, verse 15 to 17 stands, What right have you to declare my statutes if you hate my instruction? See, that's what, that's what we're charged with all the time. Church is full of hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. You know, it's not just enough to have God's law in your mouth, in your lips. It has to be in your life. It has to be demonstrated in obedience. Verse 22 to 23, Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Now the judge is God the creator. Now the judge is God the Savior. God's rebuke must be heard. If not, if we don't listen, if we don't attend our ear to his judgment, he will come against those who forgot him. He will rip them apart like a wild animal and tear them into pieces, and no one will be able to deliver them. You see, there's a lot of tares amidst the wheat. And when God judges, guess what? He's going to separate the wheat from the tares. And just because they paid lip service, just because they went through the motions, they went through the actions and appeared on the surface that they were believers, their heart was far from him. They had forgotten him. And guess what? They don't know the Savior. He can't deliver them. And so God the Savior becomes God the judge. And his judgment will be swift, violent, and final. However, those who worship God rightly, offering praise, are going to glorify him. And those who, who order their conduct or their way according to his law will see the salvation of God. You know, people say to me all the time, how, do I, how can I be sure of my salvation? Well, open the Bible, find the commands of God, and examine your life. Are you obedient to God's commands? If you, if, you're, if you don't have a desire to obey God, that ought to tell you right there, there's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that as believers we're sinless or we're perfect. We're going to sin. We're not perfect. But when we do sin... Guess what? There's going to be conviction. There's going to be guilt because the Holy Spirit's in us and we're going to repent and forsake it. But if there's no guilt, there's no forsaking, there's no, not a care in the world of what God has to say, then i got news for you. I don't care what aisle you walked. I don't care what hands you raised. I don't care who led you what. You're not saved. The evidence of salvation 
is what James says, show me your faith by your works, by your obedience to God's law. How then can hypocrisy be banished from the church? How can, how can we do that? Well, according to Psalm 50, we've got to check our worship. We need to check our obedience. And if either is out of whack, we need to bring them in line. We've got to examine ourselves. That's God's priority. When God restores His people, He's going to restore their worship. He's going to restore their obedience. And when we learn to worship the Lord, we're going to want to work for the Lord. And when our faith grows, obedience will come. We need to understand the judge is here. The judge is coming. And when he comes, he'll bring judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for our text this evening. And Lord, I pray that uh, as the judge, you might have mercy. That Lord, as you come and judge us according to our deeds, you examine our obedience and our worship. Father, I pray if there's something that is lacking, you might show us in a merciful way, that, Father, we may uh, correct it, we may fix it, we may change it, and uh, uh, do what you would have us do, Father. So often we're caught in ritual. So often we're caught in going through the motions. And I ask and pray, Lord, that you would cause us uh, to walk, first and foremost, in righteousness. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.